Hey there, and thanks for tuning in, slash downloading, whatever, in this very first episode of the Beer Movie Podcast. I'm Tim, the writer of BeerMovie.net, and this is the first of what will hopefully be many monthly installments of this podcast. Each month, I'll be joined by some, someone far more interesting than me, uh, someone involved in the film industry, uh, to chat about what they're, what they're up to, and then we'll finish it all off each month with an in-depth discussion of a film of their choice. Now, the brave soul who's joined me on this very first episode is Paul Anthony Nelson. Thanks so much for coming on, Paul. Thanks for inviting me, Tim. I'm super flattered. My pleasure. Now, I'll try and get this all in. Uh, one half of perhaps Australia's most popular film podcast, Hell is for Hyphenates. Oh, stop it, please. I <laughs> wish. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, well, you're one of about three that I listen to, so there you are. You're in a top three. Rarified company. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, filmmaker, uh, scriptwriter, director, editor, whatever else you need to do to get a short film done. Is that about mm. it? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah. Everything I don't, you know, want to pay someone to do. Fair I'll enough. Do myself. That makes sense. <laughs> uh, and then also a film reviewer uh, on Twitter and occasionally uh, awesome written top ten lists and things like that. Anything else I've missed? No, look, I think we've got it. Um, procrastinator par excellence. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll tell yeah, you no, on there. it sounds like I'm a lot busier than I am, but yeah, I. Uh, <laughs> no, actually, I'm incredible. The reason I'm so incredibly busy all the time is because I procrastinate so damn much. Um, yeah. If I was efficient, I'd get more done and uh, have more time to myself, I think. I, I, uh, that one. I, I was scrambling to finish the uh, film you suggested we, we talk about uh, in time to to record yes. this one so because i've been doing far more or less interesting stuff all morning and last night etc <laughs> excellent I'm, I'm glad i put you under the pump now i need to take issue with a few things that you put up there oh, one really? i i, I could yeah yeah i could be a podcast killer having me on first so good luck oh god yeah you i know, know that. never know uh two i'm i on a podcast called beer movie i'm actually drinking wine so i apologize i've well, brought a night I brought a knife to a gunfight, haven't I? Just, it's what's well, disgraceful. Um, <laughs> and if I had better contacts, I would just end this right now. Um, but the branding, the branding's gone totally out the window straight it off has. the bat on the first episode. Because I'm actually, I don't know if I should admit this, but I'm out of beer, Time. so I'm drinking a can of cider. Oi! Uh, I know. I was so... say, admit nothing. You know? <laughs> it's your theater of the mind. I might have to <laughs> change the name of the podcast. To alcohol movie. <laughs> <It's not laughs> that could <snappy>. be interesting. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I think I think that was all I was taking. I'm sure there was something else I was going to take issue with as well, but we'll get we'll get there. That's enough. Uh, take eventually, issue with the host surely. Um, yeah. Uh, no, no, no. The host. Um, the host is one of the things I'm fine with. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no. I'm really I'm really grateful to be on. Great, that's brilliant. So I thought I'd start off with a bit of a, a slightly random question, because I think I've, I've told you this before, and I think you were rather chuffed with the comparison, that whenever I see you tweet or, or you know, am thinking of you for whatever reason, I always think of the name Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> um, yes. So what is your favourite Paul Thomas Anderson film? Um, For me, it's... I, I kind of have two that I mm-hmm. find... I mean, technically, it's There Will Be Blood. That's... Te- technically? That's the short answer. Is it a head yeah. and a heart thing? Is that what you're... Kind of, yeah. Because okay. the head says there will be blood. The heart says punch drunk love. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, yeah. Yeah. But no, they're my two. Uh, they're the, I, I think from from Heart 8 to There Will Be Blood, it was like yeah. he was getting better with each and every single film. You think he's on a downward 
I feel strange. like it. Yeah, I like I I enjoyed. Like I think the master's got a hell of a lot going for it, and it's yep. a film that will probably re rewards upon revisits. Yeah. Um, and I I know people, um, including my partner, who think it's the greatest. Um, oh really? Yeah. Uh, whereas Inherent Vice, I just yeah, Inherent Vice was a shaggy dog tale of sorts that I I kind of enjoyed, but hell does it meander can i okay. can i swear on this podcast is Shit, it? yeah yeah that's yep. no worries fuck does that film meander but there's a lot to enjoy though like yeah, you know yeah. it's one of those i don't think he can make a bad film um but yeah but i i'm i'm kind of you know a little bit nostalgic for his early days but that's my answer fair enough I'm, i am glad you mentioned punch drunk love because i'm going to further erode my <clears throat> my cred here this time as a, a supposed film buff and say that's the only paul thomas anderson film i've actually seen for some wow. reason, they just, I don't know what it is, and they, I read about the next one coming out, and I'm like, that sounds really interesting, and for whatever reason, I just, they pass me by. Get yourself on a course. Uh, yeah, like, I'll, just sit down for a week, I'll do, do it one hell, a night. Hell is for hyphenate style, shall yes. I? Yes. All right, yeah, I'll do that. And th- and then listen to our uh, our Paul Thomas Anderson episode uh, recorded in I think it was in late 2010 with oh, okay. uh, d- director Richard Gray of Summer Coda and the Lookalike fame. Ah, excellent. Uh, yeah, uh, and then yeah, listen to that. Uh, well, I will do compare that. notes for sure. I'll do so. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Hell's Vibrance. Um, I mean, there are so many film podcasts, and I'm adding one more, obviously. But there are so many that are <laughs> are pretty focused on. Film news, reviewing a new film, a couple of recommendations at the end. You guys have a pretty unique, I guess, approach. Uh, so why don't you tell us what that is and I guess how you guys came up with that as an, an idea that has stuck for what, a good five, six years now? Nearly five years, yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, uh, our May episode will be our fifth anniversary, which we're both chuffed and amazed with yeah that's pretty pretty uh long running for a, a film podcast or yeah podcast, really <laughs> um in short uh i i host it with uh my uh partner in crime lee zachariah who is an, a much more um uh intelligent talented learned <laughs> uh charming bon vivant than me uh he's kind of the driving force behind the whole thing really, oh, really? i just i just show up uh he's you know, he's kind of the he's our talent booker. He's our, you know, our lead lead off kind of host. He's, you know, he does all the website stuff. I just, you know, I, I've often likened this to anyone familiar with um, Stephen King's Salem's Lot. I've often likened this to Bar- uh, Straker and Barlow. Okay. Are you familiar with with Salem's Lot? Or is no, I have read, I have read more than one Stephen King book, but not that one. Not that one, yeah. Or seen, or seen the miniseries, no. several miniseries. Um, yeah, essentially, like when the vampire kind of moves into town, um, there is this guy named Mr. Uh, Mr. Straker who is the front, who kind of runs the antique store, and he kind of insinuates himself in the town, and he's very personable and very, you know. And then there's Mr. Barlow, who no one ever sees, and only comes out at night to put the bang on people. Um, <laughs> and that's me. Yeah, uh, you're Lee, putting the thing. Lee Straker. Lee Straker, I'm Barlow just coming out to go and put the thing on people. But yeah, no. So we um Lee and I started this five years ago and we uh, basically just came out of us being director buffs, you know, okay. like yep. we of every kind of area of film and filmmaking, the thing we both geek out the most about is about filmmakers. Yeah. More so than actors or, you know, crew members or um story or whatever. Um 
crew members would be a niche podcast. It would be, this. yeah, like yeah, hell is for cinematographers. <laughs> uh, we so Lee and I, yeah, and and we just thought it would be really, it'd be a nice point of difference rather than just you know all the as you say the podcasts that kind of just review things or talk about stuff that's been happening in film lately. We thought we'd do one, and and we wanted it to be kind of built for built to last. Yeah, that was the other yeah, thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, and something that could be an evolving document that people could come back to years later and go and pick it up and, and, and it could kind of stand alone. I definitely uh, do that. I, I jump back, you know, three, four years when, when I've listened to the latest episode and, you know, or I'm interested in a particular director, I'll revisit the episode. Exactly. Like that's just a great way to engage with it. And we encourage that, you know, like we don't, you know, we, we love it when people listen month to month and that's, yep. that's brilliant. Um, please tell other people to listen as many people as possible because we can never have enough listeners. Of course not. Um, but it's, um, yeah, it, but it's also a, a great way to do it as well. If you've just picked it up, you know, no need to listen to 50 podcasts in a week. Like, you know, as you see that filmmaker's latest film, or as you sort of come across them, you sort of go, Oh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll watch some of this stuff and then go back to the, that episode and, and kind of uh, look into it. Now for the uninitiated, what we do is, the podcasts are always an hour long, never more, never less. They're always 15, as Lee says, always 59 minutes and change. That is exceptional accuracy. He's quite proud of that. He loves, he's, he's, uh, he, he's been known to look at the iTunes page of the feed of all the past podcasts and just take pride in seeing 59, 59, 59 all the way down the page. Is that his exceptional editing or are you guys, is he, are you, is he that it's, good at driving the conversation? Look, it's look. It's mainly his exceptional editing. We've gotten okay. better at keeping the conversation caged. Yeah. Uh, we've there was a while there where we were just kind of letting it run and run and run, and poor Lee was getting you know an hour and having to cut an hour and forty five minutes into an hour and things like that. But <laughs> you know those days are behind us for the yeah. most part. I um, suspect that that's where I'll be. I'm just but I'm not <laughs> going to bother cutting it down to a specified length. It's just going to be random lengths of episodes. Yeah, yeah. Please don't do that. Um, I, I only uh, get those new kind of, uh, you know, like those podcasts. This episode's two and a half hours. Well, this I one's hear... an hour and ten minutes. It's like what? I don't mind. I don't mind different lengths, but I. I do zone out uh, anything over maybe an hour, 20, an hour and a half. That's, yeah. that's pushing it. Look, as long as the person's interesting, you know, I could listen yeah. to Kevin Pollock talk to John Landis for two and a half hours. And I have <laughs> no problem with this. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if I'm going to listen to the film spotting guys, I, you know, want them to keep it tight. Um, Ooh, but... calling out an international podcast. <laughs> <laughs> just, just throwing it down there. I know. That's no. uh, maybe you want to cut that out and just leave the Landis bit in. Well, I'll just, I'll just call one out too because I've, I'm a fan of the Slash Film cast. Yes. This is that standard, you know, latest ones. And I was really keen to listen to their review of Chappie because I love that film. Oh, Re- wow. You're yeah. the one. Yeah, no, I am the one. Uh, I think I, I did hear of one <laughs> other too. Mm. I genuinely loved it. I know a couple. Just like it. But I had to listen to over an hour of, like, talk about religion and talk about outrage culture and all this stuff before they finally got to the review of Chappie, which was really, really good. But yeah, I agree. It's got to be focused and it's got to be, you know, chatting with someone interesting to, to stretch it out that long, I think. Well, exactly. It's like, you know, it's like a radio show. Like it shouldn't just be white noise, but yeah. So we, we devise this format that's yeah. 59 minutes and change every single month. We always go out on the last day of the month, Australian time as well. Um, 
And what it is, is we spend the first 20, 25 minutes, I guess the first 20, 20 minutes reviewing yeah. a handful of new movies, usually the stuff we can be bothered seeing. Um, Lee <laughs> tries to see as much as possible. I'm yeah. somewhat more discerning because I think it's because I'm older and I just think life's too short. You know, like I, the, the doomsday clock's a little further along for me. That, than it that's is what for age and wisdom is bought. Yes, uh, or no, I don't know about wisdom, but age. So. <laughs> it's just like no, I can't do that other silly Liam Neeson movie. But did you did you see Chappie? I didn't see Chappie. That no. was that was. Well, you're I, missing out. Film well, of the year. Well, the only film of the year. Jesus. No, not really. <laughs> um, Maybe well, top ten. So far. I hated Elysium. So oh, okay. And I liked District Nine, but I I wasn't as crazy about it as a lot of people. So I'm I'm not completely on the Neil Blomkamp train. I'm on the train backwards because I still haven't seen District Nine. Kind of liked Elysium and really liked Chappie. Right. So I'm okay. doing it all wrong, I think. Yeah, I think yeah, or at least a bizarro version of mine. Um, <laughs> It's yeah, so I'm I'm kind of a little reluctant. Like I, I do want to catch up with it at one point because I do think he has good ideas and yeah. some great intentions. But he yeah, I don't know. I think Baby both of those present. Green writer. But yeah, so we talk about we spend twenty minutes talking about new films. Then we spend ten fifteen minutes talking about either and just one particular issue to do with film. Yep. Um. And it could be recent. It could be something that's. It could be a hot button thing that's being talked about right now, or it could be something we've sort of thought about for a while. Yeah. Like recently, we dealt with the issue of. Um, we, we were talking to um, appropriate behaviors director uh, Desiree Akavan about. Yeah. Do writers get you know marginalized as the the authors behind their films in terms of the auteur, auteur theory and what have you? Yeah, you know, I was like, actually going to raise that one because I, I thought that was. A really interesting little segment one because of your guest and i love appropriate behavior and i thought it was a great episode but i was also as i was listening to it i'm like what if they decide that the director isn't that important and that's the whole focus of this podcast well put, yeah you know, six years into lee mentions that he's like that kind of rocks the foundations of everything this podcast is built upon <laughs> but what if the director's not the author yeah. um so you know we frequently play fast and loose like that and then we spend the bulk of the podcast the entire second half talking about the career of a certain filmmaker who um, our guest has chosen. Because that's the whole thing. We invite people to come on, and, we, and the first thing we kind of ask them is, okay, who do you want to talk about? And just as long as it's not someone we've talked about before. Yeah. Um, and we're also very careful. Like, every, like, for the most part, we've talked about directors, but we're careful to use the term filmmaker yeah. because – we're happy to talk about a writer or a producer or a cinematographer or, you know, an actor who has an auteurist kind of view yeah. of their, you know, career or what have you. So, I mean, there was a recent, uh, you guys did Charlie Kaufman a month or two. Right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And we've talked about Ted Hope. Um, so as a producer, so, you know, we, we've occasionally kind of um, some, I guess, has stepped outside of that. Yeah. Um, parameter but but yeah but but we say filmmaker because we originally started it to kind of include all that but we know it's pretty much going to be directed yeah that suits lee and i just fine yeah so yeah so that's the breakup of the podcast so essentially it's kind of like cliff's notes a fun chatty very casual kind of cliff's notes cast uh class on different filmmakers yeah and uh, i will say that i always steer clear of as as interested as i interested as i am i always steer clear of uh documentaries on film history and things like that because they're always so spoiler heavy and yeah. you guys for the most part 
um, pretty much are really good at summing up the qualities of film without ruining anything, which I think is one reason that I think a lot of people avoid some classic cinema content if they're intending on getting around to those films anyway. Yeah, exactly. Like I've I've heard some podcasts like Now Playing and so forth that really dig into films, and it's like you kind of know going into those that they're going to be spoiler heavy. Yeah. And we try not to be in general. Like occasionally we'll talk about something that (laughs) I guess sometimes we assume is common knowledge and may not be, but ninety nine percent of the time we we err on the side of caution and talk about a film in general rather than specific plot points. And we we talk about it in terms of its overall feel or overall review or its cultural impact. And steer from actually, you know, spoiling plot points yeah. um, for the most part. Um, you know, sometimes it's unavoidable. Sometimes we know that, you know, uh, Dorothy does return to Kansas. Sorry, <laughs> people who haven't seen Wizard of Oz. Um, but yeah, so so that's our format in in a nutshell, and we have a great deal of fun with it. And yeah, we it's sometimes a lot of work if the filmmaker is particularly prolific. That's right, because um, you do basically go through film by film generally. Well, we do, yeah. We, we like to go through their entire filmography when possible um, or as much of it as, as is available. And, you know, we do search far and wide. Uh, our, our highest rated episode is our episode with um, that was with critic Alice Tynan. We were talking yeah. about the films of Steven Soderbergh. Yeah. And Lee actually managed to score a copy of the film the last time I saw Michael Gregg which is a film that Soderbergh made pretty much for himself yep. and a bunch of Aussie actors he was directing for the, really? for the Sydney stage. Yeah. He directed a play out here for, you know, on the Sydney theater company called Tot Mom. And, you know, Soderbergh being Soderbergh couldn't resist just making a film inside, just making a film just cause he was there. And, you know, um, and this film had, had was never planned to be released, yep. never planned for, he just did it as a thing. And gave copies to the, you know, the cast and crew and himself and what what crew there was, and um, that and that was it. And Lee managed to um, score, managed to track a copy of that down and provide what we were pretty sure was the first, and still is one of the very few, if not still the only, public review of that film. That's pretty. Now, um, I just want to ask: Has there been a filmmaker? So you know, obviously, you unless it's someone totally obscure, you would have preconceived notions going in. Uh, to the experience of tracking all these films down and watching them, talking about them. Has there been a filmmaker or multiple who your opinion of has totally flipped? Look, uh, I wouldn't go to that extent in terms of I've been turned around. Like, yeah, I didn't come out of our Michael Bay podcast liking Michael Bay anymore. <laughs> uh, I didn't come out of our, um, you know, the, the many filmmakers I've loved, uh, loving them any less. I... But it has led me to a few filmmakers that are surprising, like because obviously there's been filmmakers we've talked about who I hadn't seen anything of, and that's the yeah. greatest thing it's about this podcast is discovering filmographies. And one like one for me uh, for our because um, for our middle segment, how I mentioned earlier that we some we often talk about an issue to do with film. Every few months we will talk about what we call a mini hyphenate, which is yeah. somebody who's made five or less feature films who maybe, you know, whose filmography may be too small to be considered for the main stage, who people might not necessarily know or pick to be the filmmakers to talk about. And so we look at people with really small filmographies. Like we looked at Australia's Sarah Watt, who'd made two yeah. films. We looked at Jean Vigo, the French director who yeah. died after just making one film and a couple of shorts. 
But we one of my favourite one. We looked at the American director Elaine May, yeah. who uh, was part of the Nichols and May comedy duo with Mike Nichols, uh, who was a great and Academy Award nominated writer in her own right. Yeah, but had this directing career that was just lasted four films, and we watched these films and we're just blown away. Like her four films are um, there's a comedy with Walter Matthau that she wrote, directed, and starred in called A New Leaf. Yep. Then she directed Neil Simon's The Heartbreak Kid with Charles Grodin and Sybil Shepherd. Then this staggering film called Mikey and Nikki that she wrote and directed with John Cassavetes and Peter Falk. And then her last film was Ishtar. Ah, yeah. The <laughs> notorious, Ishtar. yes, the notorious Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman flop. And we were just so entertained by all of them. Like, Ishtar okay. is much better than it's his reputation suggests. I have heard, I've never seen it, but I've, I've heard that exact same thing, actually. Yeah, about May or about Ishtar? Uh, about Ishtar specifically. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mikey and Nikki, my God, that is a film that should be up there with the greatest films of the 1970s. Okay. Um, and that's the thing. She's as, She turned out to be as an amazing a new Hollywood director as I'd ever seen, and I obsess over that particular period of time. <laughs> And the fact that I hadn't seen any of these films was kind of blowing my mind. Um, but essentially, A New Leaf is her kind of dark Billy Wilder film. Okay. Uh, that sounds um, awesome. The Heartbreak Kid is her kind of spin on The Graduate, essentially. So she's mm-hmm. kind of doing her old mate Nichols there. Yeah. And then in the um, Mikey and Nikki is like her doing a John Cassavetes film. And it's like they're all... It's like all these, she's basically doing her own spins on these great filmmakers, um, which is kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, her stuff is totally worth checking out. So stuff like that is yeah. is more more than the fact that like I went in kind of, oh, I really like this person. And it's like, yeah. oh, actually, yeah. I've never had that swap around. Um, okay. But discovering filmmakers. Yeah, Elaine May one is one. Um, and others that you'd heard were great. And then you were like, yeah, whatever. But are they great? And then you see them and like, you're just like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like yeah. uh, Akira Kurosawa was yeah. that one. Yeah. That, was, that was the one. And I only actually got halfway through his filmography, thankfully. <laughs> thankfully, Lee got all the way. It was, it was a month when I was particularly busy. and okay. And I – but I'd seen like – I only got through 15 of his first 17 films and two-thirds wow. of those, genuine classics. Okay, yeah. Did you see – did you get to Dozu Osawa? No. Yeah, that's one of my favorites of his. Wow, okay. I think it's a, I think it's a lesser-known one. It's like a Russian-Japanese mm. co-production. But, yeah, that's for me. Is, and I think it's actually quite late in his career as Yeah, well. it's very deep. It's like yeah, and, 75 or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think, a very underrated classic. Yeah, all right. I've got to catch up. I basically have to catch up with everything from kind of – I think um, the lower depths onwards, like yep. sort of 1957 onwards. So yeah, I've still got all that, all that goodness, like Redbeard and 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 Dudeskaden and Dursuzala and and Ran and Kagamusha ahead of me. But yeah, but that's a that's a guy we just you sort of watch that filmography and go, okay, yeah. this is as great as everybody's been saying. Absolutely, because there are a lot of films out there, and I, I guess uh, this is a good way for you to force yourself to watch a lot of those classics you keep hearing about is by focusing so heavily on a filmography. Absolutely, yeah. All right. it, it does wonders. And that's the other thing, too. The reason Lee and I really love it, as well as the two things we, we, we seem to dig the most about it are, one, the enthusiasm of the guest yeah, and, and hearing what has led the guest to focus on this particular filmmaker and what about that filmmaker's career they connect with. Um, and the other thing is just furthering our own film education. 
yeah. just getting you know it just we get to mainline on somebody for a month you know like this month we're we're, we're going through the films of jane campion oh, and man. i've and i've barely seen any campion i've seen top of the lake and and um uh in the cut and a long lot when i was 18 i saw the piano and hated it yeah. because i was an 18 <laughs> yeah, year old boy yeah <laughs> um but yeah but we're 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 watching her stuff and so far it's been fantastic great so um we'll move into your filmmaking but to do that i just wanted to touch on uh what i'm ran out of time because i was procrastinating but mm-hmm. what i'm 99 sure was your favorite film of last year inside lewin davis this is correct yes <laughs> um i just wonder how much of your appreciation for that film was that you are you're an artist of some description and a lot of that film or you know one way to read that film is so much about uh, that artistic life and sacrifice and self-doubt. I mean, did that come into it at all? Oh, or was that totally was, rude? that's, you've hit it on the button. Like yeah. that's the whole, yeah. It's, it was a film that I, I kind of, at the moment I put it up there as to me, Inside Lewin Davis personally is the best film of the 2010s so far. Yeah. And a lot of it is because it just hits me in that place. Absolutely. Like it's something, you know, about being, a struggling artist and and or an emerging artist and all those questions you ask yourself about am I good enough and and some of this will feed into the film I'm about to talk about talk about yeah. later as well um and talk about that sort of you know am I am I good enough am I have I hit at the wrong time like yeah. you know and, and, you know if because that's with him like he, he you know he's he's a talented guy he's a yeah. you know he's a good artist he's committed he's he's real is you know, but it he he's arrived too early. You know, he's arrived at, or, or is it too late? Or is it a time when you know folk is about to implode and be taken yeah. to the next phase with Bob Dylan? You know, um, and sometimes some people, some talented people, just you know, they they slip through the cracks. Yeah, they slip through the cracks. They they they're um they they get that they're the right person at the wrong time. Yeah. You know. Um, so, you know, there's all that self-doubt. There's the whole thing about when does, uh, creative integrity become obstinate? When yeah. does it, you know, when, the, how much does it help you, but what point can it hurt you? Yeah. You know, um, about constantly kind of being broken. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just take the money. I won't take the royalties, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. and so much about him and his attitude. And, and it was funny because so many reviews were focusing on what an asshole he supposedly is. And I, was quite i didn't find him to be an asshole at all i i found him to be completely relatable and a bit of a sad character and, and yeah. quite you know um yeah um like i felt sorry for the guy you know yeah, I, agree. And, yeah, I, I didn't i didn't particularly think he was that much of an asshole either i, I could i could see his his plight if you will and i guess the plight in his head that was coming out so much in the film yeah and you know sure he's a little short-tempered with people at times and stuff but you know he's struggling life's not going so well for this dude at the moment you know um so yeah i and you know he could probably be a little less irresponsible at times but that <laughs> is that exactly um but i just love and i love the evocation of the period and i'm not a folk music guy at all that's the other thing that okay. surprised me but i think it's the cohen's best work and i and and i i'm saying this as someone who adores fargo and adores miller's crossing and yeah. um i watched blood simple again the other night and that okay. is a fantastic debut um just brilliantly reversing noir tropes it's well, so good 
given those films you mentioned, maybe there's hope for Paul Thomas Anderson still because yes. been, what his first three films you just named his, his sort of favourites, and they've they've come back with Inside Bill and Davis. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's uh, like yeah. I mean, PTA is a talented guy. I, 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 for me, I don't think he's become less of a filmmaker. I just think he's become. I don't know. It almost feels like anti-audience at times. It just sort yeah, of okay. feels like I. This is kind of what I want to explore. And fuck you if you're interested. Yeah. I'm going here, um, which is great. And I don't begrudge him that he deserves everything. But um, yeah, uh, but I don't think any of his filmmaking skill has has left him. I think I think PTA is just as if, even more amazing. Um, but yeah, but but yeah. So that you're absolutely on the button regarding Inside Lewin Davis. That's exactly why it connects with me um as 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 a story and as a as a um yeah as a film so yeah i mean you are a short filmmaker a filmmaker of or maker of what you refer to as micro budget films mm-hmm. um so i mean you write most of i think you've, you've written most of them that you've directed mm-hmm. um and one of the things I, I love about them is there's sort of this throwback genre uh style to them and a lot of social commentary there especially in the writing phase with that social commentary, how do you get that balance right? So even though they're shorts, like, you know, it's not, not just a, a quote-unquote issues film or that doesn't sort of overwhelm the style or, or the fun of them. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it's it's strange. Often that it, it'll just be an idea that, that strikes me. Um, you'll just be seeing something and it's like, you know, you look at Herald Sun headlines and talkback radio <laughs> hosts like Alan Jones, you're like, it really does get into people's heads. Yeah, absolutely. And then you just start thinking, what if it was like a virus? And what if it turned people into zombies that just kill anybody that's different to them? And so you kind of, you and then you're off to the races. Um, you know, uh, which is the case we talk about. Um, yeah, that, that's usually kind of how it comes to me. My latest short film that I, I shot in February and is currently mm-hmm. in post-production is this film called Cigarette. Yep. Um, that is a film that came to me in a dream, which I've really? yeah, which I've never gone down that route before, <laughs> uh, which is interesting. Um, it was a surprisingly lucid and linear dream, which which made me think, well, this has to be a short film, especially okay. the linear. I don't have linear dreams. No, who does? Uh, and this was one of those like, but every once in a while, one is, yep. and then you kind of go, like, maybe I should take notice because that actually made yep. a really good short film idea and kind of. <laughs> refers to this and that and and you know again it's it came from that dream and the stuff that was happening in that dream that was very driven by kind of gender politics and uh where 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 men and women are kind of at right now yep. and and you know this sort of collision between female pain and male privilege and yep. it was sort of came out of that so yeah um so that'll be hopefully hitting festivals later in the year um everything going well uh, but yeah, but it's it's you know with with scope it was a different thing. Like w- w- scope, the social stuff kind of came later. But but it was mainly this idea of thinking of a blind sniper. Yeah, and how which is just an awesome you know seventies genre film, <laughs> low budget idea really. <laughs> Cheers, I it was actually it was a film I made at RMIT uh, in my year I did there, and it was yeah. kind of. I really wish I'd had more money. I wanted more fight scenes. I wanted it to be more. I mean, I know a lot of. Well, that was the thing I sort of could kind of hide behind that a lot of seventies drive-in kind of exploitation or genre movies were kind of like that. Like yeah. Corman's thing was like, as long as you 
wow them at the start and wow them at the end. You can just do whatever the fuck you want in the middle. And and that was kind of what was happening. It was all like, well, you know, I, I kind of got, you know, the hit at the end. I got the thing at the start. It's like, well, the rest is just kind of a bit of a talk fest and, you know, there's a thing in between. And so, you know, I could kind of lay on that. But I did want a little more action in there. And and, and that's actually an idea we're thinking about coming back to um, for a feature project as well. Yeah, that's brilliant. And I did, I think this is probably falls into the partly saving budget and partly that uh, homage to old genre flicks is, you know, the screen flashing red. Uh, yes. As the, I mean, that is, I love that. I, I just smiled when I saw that. It's, <laughs> it's such a fun idea. Completely stolen from Quentin Tarantino. I assumed Pop it might have been stolen, but I yeah. couldn't. <laughs> um, yeah. Why not? Uh, like, because Tarantino is my favorite filmmaker. Oh, really? He is my, he's my god. So it's that sort of thing <laughs> where, and looking at him and how willing he is to cough up to where he's stealing from, I think that's such a great, nothing annoys me more. And I find a lot of Australian filmmakers do this. Like, they tend to go, they tend to kind of dismiss their influences or, or yeah, if people absolutely. call them on their influences, yeah. they're like, oh, yeah, it didn't really have anything to do. It's just my idea. And it's like, no, admit, whereas I love people like Scorsese, uh, like, Tarantino and Scorsese and Edgar Wright, yep. who sort of come forward and go, no, nah, I totally ripped that off from this. Yeah. In a very loving, in a very loving way, too. Yeah. They embrace it, uh, and yeah, there's nothing less original about what they're doing as a result. Which I think, you know, a lot of people have that fear if they admit that they have been influenced, then it's suddenly not their idea anymore. Correct, and it's not the case. It's like we all synthesize our experiences, and films we watch are a part of that experience. And as a filmmaker, it's you know, like it's pretty hard to just come out of the womb and just, you know, have an original way of making films. You know, yeah. like everyone in some way is shaped by the stuff that they've seen or the art, whatever art form they're operating in. Um, so I think to not cop to that cheerfully is kind of a bit disingenuous. Yeah. But, but yeah, but I, like I like I referred to Tarantino and the many times I've had to defend him. Um, as I think he was cinema's first genuine kind of DJ, like a mix yeah. master, like somebody Absolutely. who would get, who would sample all of these tracks in, and make it something uniquely his own. Um, and that's the thing is as much as people like to accuse him of being a, you know, plagiarism, what have you, none of his films feel like they're made by anybody else. Definitely not. If you, you, you play a five minute clip from any Tarantino film, you'd, anybody would be able to pick it as a Tarantino film, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, no, it's not like, oh, that feels like some Jack Starrett film from the 1970s. No, <laughs> it feels like a Tarantino movie. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I really admire that. So, yeah, no, totally stole the thing from, from Pulp Fiction, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> no worries. I'm glad you dug it. I have seen Pulp Fiction. I, I feel I need to let everyone know oh, all good. the amazing films I've seen. You know, like, <laughs> Yeah, there's something in that about Tarantino embracing his influences, being loving about it. Mm. And I, I wonder if some of that comes out of his age and, you know, I presume, I don't know exactly how old he's, but I presume sort of growing up, being a film buff in the age of VHS. Well, yeah. You know, the, the first generation, I mean, it's gone to the next level now, but the first generation to have classic films, all films sort of pretty much on hand when you wanted them. Mm. Well, that was the thing. He was the first, him and Rodriguez and a few other yep. guys there were the, uh, you almost throw Linklater in there as well. And yeah. they were the first generation of VHS filmmakers. Whereas the, the guys in the seventies, your Scorsese, Bogdanovich, Friedkin, they were the first generation of movie buffs. They were, yeah. um, they were people who grew up, 
you know, going to the movies and grew up on, whereas that previous generation, like the, when they got into the industry, it was kind of in its infancy or it's just sort of started. But, but those seventies guys were the first ones who saw, watched tons of films on television. Yeah. And who studied film at film schools. Yeah. Cause before that generation of 60s, 70s filmmakers, there were no film schools and there were no television. No. Um, Whereas Tarantino and Rodriguez and Linklater and that generation, they were the and Kevin Smith, they were the first VHS generation. They were the, they were the first generation of kids who grew up just mainlining films on VHS and studying them and watching things over and over and over again, which is not a luxury that any other generation before them had. Yeah. Um, and you know, of course, Quentin famously worked in a video store and would just mainline stuff there as well um yeah so that was definitely a big factor in shaping his 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 kind of worldview and we're all you know we're all post that now you know we're all uh i guess post vhs slash dvd slash streaming generation now you know the youtube generation you know we've we've all we've had so much input now that we can't help but you know mix and synthesize what we've seen yeah i think we're sort of almost into the over-entitled generation in, in that and so many other ways. I was, I was at work the other day and someone was complaining that, you know, you only got a thousand different titles for your $9 Netflix yeah. Australia subscription. And I just I just couldn't believe it. It's just that attitude, you, you must have access to absolutely everything right now. Yeah, and yeah. You don't need like, all that. That's the thing. I, I, I briefly was... I, I've been subscribing to the American Netflix for some time and I love it. And I started... <laughs> the Australian one just to look at it. And I actually parked because I can't afford both. I parked yeah. the Australian one for a while. It's like, Oh, wait till I get a few more titles. Um, but you know, but I, but still like, I don't, the attitude I don't like is, Oh, I could pirate more than this. It's like, yeah, oh, fuck you. That's not what this is about. You know, it's yeah. about, you know, making sure that, you know, people do get eventually paid for their work yes. and, you know, you keep, you know, this is an industry after all. It's not That's show, show, it's show business. Yeah um yeah so but yeah that's that that's kind of where i sort of come from in all this i guess i'm very much you know uh i i like my loving homages the thing we're writing now with my partner perry cummings who kind of runs my company cinema viscera with me um she's the star of scope and talk back and most of my films um uh we're right um sort of yeah, we're writing a film at the moment that is a modern day, set modern day in Melbourne amongst the worlds of like comedy and blogging and so forth. But it's yeah. a but it's a film noir, and much of it is going to be shot in black and white and four three. And Brilliant. yeah, so like yeah, I'm always I'm always more than willing to engage with the um, some would say eager uh, to engage with film <laughs> in the past. Definitely, and I mean, so where does your love of uh, or I mean. Do you do you have a particular love of older genre films, B movies, and things that come out in your in your own shorts, or do you just think it looks cool? No, um, that comes from a genuine genre love. Like I, I with Scope in particular, that was a film that was yeah. influenced by both black exploitation films, which is one of my favourite subgenres of film. The like there's there's something about black exploitation or black action films or what do you want to call them? Yeah, that is so raw and immediate and so it feels so real like it feels more more real than the stuff that was kind of going on at the time cinematically um you know a lot of it's low budget a lot of it's shot in the actual locations and you know streets and of cities and ghettos and things like that and 
and there's a there's just this kind of vitality to it. Like I mean, it had its own cliches, like every genre, but but yeah, yeah th- there's this kind of truth and vitality to it that just keeps me riveted. And and it's you know it's a little it's a little slipshod at times, a little haphazard, but that kind of fits in with the whole truth of the thing. Um, which is why, you know, there's a couple of shots in scope where like, you know, we're on a dolly and dolly shapes and things like that. And I left them in because it's like, well, this is the kind of stuff those films did. They just, you know, they were professional for the most part, but occasionally they'd be mistaken. I'm like, fuck it. That's the only take we got, you know? Uh, (laughs) it's just, let's just keep it in there. Um, it's another good, good time with the film we're about to discuss. Yeah, exactly. Uh, (laughs) yes um but yeah he um but that's but that, that that's kind of the thing where I, I i i love that sort of thing but but yeah it always comes out of a like yeah sometimes things do look cool like you know scratched up film and what have you yeah. but it's only if it's true to the story yeah. and the genre that we're trying to serve you know and and for me it was kind of getting across with scope was getting across the idea of having a female hero a disabled hero and, yeah. Or you know an impaired hero and and putting that in a super cool context. Definitely. Uh, last question on the the short films. I'm pretty sure that on the on your website you mentioned that talk pack cost three hundred and fifty seven dollars. Yes, it did. What did you spend your three hundred and fifty seven? <laughs> oh God, I can't remember. Um, we had some. We did have some makeup effects. Um, there's a little bit of latex to pay for. Um few props and what have you uh we might have hired some lights okay and that was kind of about it yeah it, it looks like it was looks a hundred hundreds of dollars better than three. <laughs> it does it looks like at least a thousand dollars. at least four figures definitely. yeah um well that's you know we hope to do that proportionally we hope <laughs> that the three figure films look like four figure films the four figure films look like five figure films so forth I think that's that's fair to aim for, and I think you you pulled it off so far. <laughs> we hope so. Alrighty, let's move on to the film that you've chosen to to uh, chat about, and I, I I think I made it a bit hard, and I will for everyone. Is I just said just choose a film for us to talk about. It can be anything. Yeah, yeah so, like I, I've only seen three thousand of them, so <laughs> it's fine. It's a big um, one. Which of the three thousand did you choose, and why? It's basically like someone asking you what your favorite song. Well, well, and and the other thing is too that you have these like these incredibly open parameters. Like it's, it's <laughs> like it's like don't just give us your favorite film. Like give us it could be a film you like, could be a film you hate, could be a film you think people should see. It could be a film you think is completely overrated. It could it could be a film that you know. I, was I thought like, I was help. I thought that was helping. No, helping literally could be <laughs> any film ever made. Um, there you go. The film I've, cho- I've decided to choose is in my top 10 films of all time. It's actually sitting at number 10 at the moment. The list right. constantly evolves. But it's Tim Burton's Ed Wood uh, from yeah. 1994. Um, the golden age of Burton. Yeah. Now, I'm Burton's a filmmaker I'm at a bit of odds with at the moment. I just sort of feel like I can't really trust him anymore in terms of his work. Like I saw Big Eyes the other day, and it just completely... Yeah. I, what can I say? Like, not crushed, but just kind of like, uh, yeah, what? Again, just completely underwhelmed me. Um, I, I think uh, I think it was you, or it might have been Lee on Hell's Partners talking about it, just said anyone could have made this. This is not you know, what we expect from Tim Burton. Yeah, film. I mean, but see, yeah, Lee did say that, and I counted with, no, I think it feels very much like a Tim Burton film. Okay. That's the problem. Um, yeah, okay. It's far too cartoonish. It turns characters into caricatures. It's all other thing, but I don't want to 
kicked Tim Burton while I'm praising him because Ed Wood to me is his masterpiece. Okay. And I think if you get like if you get basically he takes the world's worst filmmaker, a man known for his shoddiness and ineptitude and yeah. and you know writing screenplays while drunk and all this sort of business, <laughs> gets him and turns his story into possibly well for me definitely the most inspirational film about filmmaking ever made yeah and i think you know it, it's very easy to kind of i don't know like I, I look at films about hollywood that you know films like the player and films like you know and yeah. other, like and a lot of these films are satires and criticisms as well so they're not quite as inspirational but yeah and not as love i think this is a loving absolutely hollywood or a film about film yeah it's a, it's, it's a loving tribute to a filmmaker and to filmmaking in general and to what drives people to do this career, which is essentially madness. Um, <laughs> and he's, you know, it's the collaborative art, you know? This is, yeah. what I, this is what I go through every other week. It's like, I could have been a novelist. You know, <laughs> this is you and a computer yeah. or a typewriter or whatever. It's you and the words. Um or, yep. a, or a musician, you know, you can just you and yep. your instrument and the thing, and you know, and a, the, something to record it. But no, I had to choose the collaborative art. I had to choose one where you have there... to put a bunch of people together to do this thing. And so it's just, you know, you have to inspire people with enthusiasm, even if your project is considerably <laughs> a cockeyed proposition. And that's what <laughs> I, one of the things I think this film really gets is that he's just Ed's boundless enthusiasm for what he's doing. Yeah. And and his, you know, unkillable kind of like, you know, even when things do get dark. And, I, and you know, things got very dark for Ed in his real life, indeed. And yeah. I, I, I kind of like that the film shies away from him. Like, normally I'd be annoyed with that. But this is such a valentine to, to, to Ed yeah, and agree. to filmmaking that I don't... And it does imply it at the end that, you know, he fell into alcoholism and nudie yeah. films and what have you. But but I don't think it's this film's place to go into that. Um, yeah, I agree. I think we get so many films, so many... I think a, it's fair to say a majority of films, I think, are cynical, yeah. you know, um, and uh, a lot of great films are cynical, but Burton, I think, you're right, strips a lot of that away and makes for a more unique experience as a result. Yeah, like, we could have had the Boogie Nights version of this, which was the first half is, you know, hey, I'm making movies, and isn't it fun, and isn't it funny, and they're kind of shit, but we're all loving it, and, it's like that. and then all of a sudden, the, the entire second half is the kind of, you know, descent into alcoholism, and into porn, yeah. into poverty, and you know, stories I've read of Ed Wood, you know, spending all his money on liquor and, you know, he's going, yeah. waiting outside the liquor store with his hand shaking and all that sort of thing. And it's like, well, that's not, you know, and we could have had that and that might have been a good, a really terrific film in itself, but it wouldn't have had the effect on me that this film has. Definitely. Um, you know, and things like, there, there's a scene in the film where Ed meets Orson Welles, who um, is one of his, you know, kind of idols. That never happened. He never met Orson Welles. That's, yeah. that's a complete invention. Um, just for the purposes of getting his character where he needs to be, and you know, and the fact that hey, Vincent D'Onofrio does a pretty good Orson Welles impression. He does. Um, he does definitely. Um, so it's you know, I just there's there's a re and you know, again coming back to why I picked this film um, as well as being it, it kind of there are a number of films that were kind of knocking around my head to talk about. This was the one I kept coming back to because. Yeah. Being at this micro-budget stage and kind of trying to make the best films you can and and just trying to be the best, you know, trying to be true to yourself as an artist and trying not to compromise and all that sort of thing. And it just, I don't know, it's 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 a film that seems to, even on Ed's shitty level, seems to get that. 
um, and yeah. seems to be kind of a little, it's a little bit of wish fulfillment too. I wish somebody said, "Hey, you know, write whatever shit you want as long as it's seven real long." You know, I'll pay <laughs> for it. Like, yeah. I would yeah. kill for that opportunity right now. Yes. Even if, even if you only had three yes. days to write the script. Three days, whatever <laughs> you want, just make sure it's seven reels long. Done. <laughs> will come out with something. Um, there's there's so much in this film that 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 I just love. I mean, obviously there's the resplendent black and white. Yeah. Um, it's making the the fact that it makes a biopic in the fashion of its subject. Is really good and something I don't think enough biopics do. Yeah, and I think it's I think that the other beauty of that, and we sort of touched on it, is that it it sort of circumvents this what I think is a very boring discussion when talking about biopics about you know oh technically that didn't happen oh he never met yeah. her oh that film didn't hadn't come out by then by stylizing it in that way uh, I think it sort of gets around that and you know makes the film a lot more enjoyable. yeah absolutely. Um... You know, because it's because it's in the end, it's about this person's character and their you know enthusiasm for what they're doing, and their you know the fact that they were utterly sincere when making these crazy nutty movies. Um, you know, and and like like the Lewin Davis thing we we're talking about before, there's there's a key line at seven min about six or seven minutes into Ed Wood where he's lying in bed with his girlfriend, and he's going, "What if I'm wrong? What if I just don't got it?" And that's something yep. I thought of Lewin Davis when, when that. Yeah, and it's just up. like Definitely. that's what I think every fucking week, you know? It's like yeah. <laughs> you know, what if I'm wrong about this? What if this isn't the way for me to go, you know? And then you just go and a lot of filmmakers go through that. And you're just constantly convincing yourself that you know what you're doing. Um and yeah. then, because you have to convince everyone around you that you know what you're doing. Um yeah, absolutely. and a lot of that is a you know, is a magic trick in itself. Um he gets told that towards the end of the film, you know, he, or maybe towards the middle of the film, he has to have that bluster about him, that showmanship, mm. has to believe that he he does have yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, and there's stuff like there's, uh, you know, the pitch meetings with the potential backers, and there's you know outbursts on the set, and there's you know having to do crazy things to get the film financed, and and all that sort of stuff. That's not that far from a lot of very legitimate filmmakers' experience these days. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I, like, I really like the way the film sort of touches on that stuff. Though I, I think it really touches on how difficult filmmaking is. Yeah, um, absolutely. In a way that's not like, oh, we don't have X million dollars for this. Like, it, it's in a very manageable way. It deals, and it deals with the kind of economics I deal with. It's like you know, it's features for twenty thousand dollars or sixty thousand yeah. dollars, and it's shorts for less than you know, and. It, I guess it sort of frames the filmmaking experience in a way that I can relate to. Even Absolutely. though it's, you yeah. know, it's from 60 years ago. Um, but that sort of economy and being on the fringes and wanting to be independent, not be part of the city, um, that all kind of feeds into it as well. Um, I've, you know, and, and I, I can relate to, I, I, I relate to Mavericks, you know, it yeah. sounds, sounds like a bit of a wank, but it's like, I, I, I've been reading a biography of Russ Meyer. Oh yeah. Uh, who's another guy who did things on his own terms outside of the system i uh, like he made a couple of films with fox but other than that they're, they're all in his own production company and you know and that's what we're trying to do with cinema viscera we're trying to build a company with its own yep. identity and its own you know slate and all that sort of stuff and you know um that's you know that'll take time but that's kind of you know i just don't like you sort of look at traditional funding bodies and the traditional ways of the way things are done and you yeah. see so much that's kind of broken and 
you know, you've got a section of the industry that believes that it's broken and wants to do something about it and keeps rubbing up against the industry. And there's the other half that refuses yeah. to believe anything is broken. They're happy to do everything that they've done before. Because, you know, that's the way it's done. And, you yeah. know, and it's just kind of, I've always related more to American independent filmmakers than Australian independent filmmakers. Yeah. I just like that whole, just get it done, you know, just, just, just go out and raise the money and do it. Not have to write 78 grant proposals and go through 19 stages of development where your film is in development for 10 years and in development for so yeah. long that everything you've written feels like a first draft by the end of it because it's sort of come out That's on right. the other side. Um, which I've seen so many Australian films that feel like that. And they're like, you know, they get the, the criticism that they're underscripted. And it's like, no, no, often they're overscripted. <laughs> often they've been in the, yeah. in the oven way too long. Um, but, you know, but we make some great stuff too. I don't want to be seen like I'm, I'm, I'm a downer because yeah we, we do make some cool stuff yeah we do but you're there's not that tradition uh, that, that grand american tradition of indie filmmaking no uh, in this country no and I, I think that's starting to happen now i think more and more that's starting to, you know as people have access to their own cameras and their own equipment and stuff becomes more affordable i think that's becoming more of a thing um definitely i think you know even though there's comparisons to be made with 60 years ago like you said there, there are some very structural changes from the last decade, you know, cost of cameras and crowdfunding are the two obvious ones that hopefully we'll, we'll see a greater diversity in a whole range Absolutely. of Absolutely. Um, and other than that, the film's just really fucking funny. Um, it is hilarious. There's, um, you know, like, and, and, you know, a lot of that just comes from Ed's own work. Like, just... Uh, watching Bella Lugosi just inexplicably shout, PULL THE STRING! <laughs> as, as footage of buffalo stock footage of buffaloes yep. superimposed over the top so what the f- and this is in a movie about transvestites um transvestite uh being a transvestite and it's like yep. what the fuck is going on here and the execs <laughs> that he said it to are having exactly the kind of reaction you have yep. when you see it and you know and i just think that's really um yeah i think it's funny but it's affectionate you know it like it has fun with the films but never takes advantage of it and i just yeah never really laughs no. at, at him as, as a figure yeah, at all just it respects him it I does think. it does and and that's the thing i mean as shoddy as his films are again it comes back to that thing i was talking about black exploitation earlier there's a truth and a rawness there you know there's an unfiltered quality that i really yeah. love doesn't have that studio sheen where everything feels the same we're gonna go you know we're gonna save the cat everything you know um yeah. Yeah, so I, I just yeah, I, I just feel like it's a bit of a talisman as I as I'm navigating my way through, you know, micro budget independent filmmaking. I kind of look at Ed Wood as a bit of a, you know, obviously I hope to make better films than he did, um, touch wood. But um, from what you're saying, I seem to be so that's good. Um, but I think I think so. I think you've got him excellent. covered. <laughs> um, but yeah, but just in terms of like the trappings and trying to get the money and trying to get them made and trying to keep up the, that enthusiasm and trying to come up with, you know, new ideas and, and make a mark for yourself. I think we have all that sort of stuff in common. And I think a film, I think Ed Wood is a Valentine to all of that. And, and that's why I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And the other aspect I think that really, uh, you know, is just a film buff is Martin Landau as Bella Lugosi. And that really tender central relationship yeah. between him and Ed Wood is, I mean, Landau was so exceptional, uh, I thought, as Bella Lugosi. Yeah, he's amazing. He completely disappears into that character. Um, 
uh, yeah, and that and that is the thing, and that relationship does provide an anchor to the film, um, and certainly an emotional one. I mean, I have you know my own emotional engagement with the with the, with the um, with the filmmaking sort of stuff, as you can tell. But yeah, I think that's a relationship that draws a lot of people into the film as well, and it's very beautiful. And and Depp's performance feels honest and not quirked filled either. Like yeah. it was, it was kind of in that time when you know he was doing really interesting stuff. Definitely, yeah, and uh, very unique and uh, not like every other performance yeah. that he was doing in any way, or, or not not too exaggerated. And I think that uh, Tim Burton really uses, or, or I guess the writers of the film, because I know he didn't write it, they, they sort of use uh, Lugosi as a way, I think, to get some of that darkness in there. Like, there's that chilling scene where he's been checked into rehab and he's just screaming. Yeah, yeah, um, And, you know, it's it's really hits you, and I think... It's an interesting uh, way to structure it, where they had darkness they could tap into with the character of mm. Edward. They they put it all into Lugosi, yeah. um, which I think uh, allows some of the themes to come through a bit better and for it to not feel overly yeah, cynical. Yeah, exactly. Again, it's with that loving thing. It's like what's happening to this poor guy. It's like this is this is the other side of this of being on the fringes of the industry. You know, you you get forgotten, you get discarded, you get left to fester and and be swallowed by your own addictions and friendless and alone. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think it addresses that in that eloquent type way too. And there's the other character, the, the character of uh, Sarah Jessica Parker is Dolores Fuller as well, is there to kind of provide yeah. some bullets of truth at times when she just loses at that yeah. party. It's like you're all just making shit. Why the hell? Like why are you all? <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah, it's kind of. On one hand, it's really mean, and on the other hand, she's sort of right. She's so right. <laughs> but you know, but it's yeah. Look, I, I just I just adore it. It's just a film I just keep coming back to, and it it makes me feel really really comfortable. Um, and and not alone, <laughs> which is yeah. which in the end is what films do. That's right. Many trailblazers have come before you. Exactly, you know, uh, even if they are completely inept. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. Well, we're into uh, Lee's famed 59 and change territory. Uh, so so we'll leave it there, but plug all your things, your films, your podcasts, your uh, Twitter, which I notice you're trying to avoid uh, procrastinating about. Yes, uh, by the disengaging myself from social media generally. Um, but, yeah, basically my... Uh, the podcast is at hellisforhyphenates.com. Uh, you can also search for it on YouTube, uh, sorry, YouTube, on iTunes and Stitcher. Um, and my website is cinemaviscera.com, um, V-I-S-C-E-R-A. Um, and that has all of my shorts on it and as well as news about upcoming projects. Brilliant. Thanks so much for joining us. And you can read my stuff at beermovie.net. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at beer underscore movie. And hopefully you will have found this podcast through iTunes or a number of other platforms. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next month.